Hi there, this is Robin Norgren, and I'm your host for Creativity, Montessori, and the Meaning of Life. You can find all the work that I do on the links on my Instagram account under at Robin underscore Norgren and at UBU for Life. Here's some words from the book called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Resistance Greatest Hits. The following is a list in no particular order of those activities that most commonly elicit resistance. Number one, the pursuit of any calling in writing, painting, music, film, dance, or any creative art, however marginal or unconventional. Number two, the launching of any entrepreneurial venture or enterprise for profit or otherwise. Number three, any diet or health regimen. Number four, any program of spiritual advancement. Number five, any activity whose aim is tighter abdomens, abdominals. (laughs) Number six, any course or program designed to overcome an unwholesome habit or addiction. Number seven, education of any kind. Number eight, any kind of political, moral, or ethical courage, including the decision to change for the better, some unworthy pattern of thought or conduct in ourselves. Number nine, the undertaking of any enterprise or endeavor whose aim is to help others. Number 10, any act that entails commitment of the heart, the decision to get married, have a child, whether a rocky patch in a relationship. Number 11, The taking of any principled stand in the face of adversity. In other words, any act that rejects immediate gratification in favor of long-term growth, health, or integrity. Or, expressed another way, any act that derives from our higher nature instead of our lower. Any of these will elicit resistance. Resistance cannot be seen, heard, or smelled, but it can be felt. We experience it as an energy field radiating from a work-in potential. It's a repelling force. It's negative. Its aim is to shove us away, distract us, prevent us from doing our work. Resistance seems to come from outside ourselves. We relocate it in our spouses, jobs, bosses, kids, peripheral opponents, as Pat Riley used to say when he coached the L.A. Lakers. Resistance is not a peripheral opponent. Resistance arises from within. It is self-generated and self-perpetuated. Resistance is the enemy within. Resistance will tell you anything to keep you from doing your work. It will perjure, fabricate, falsify, seduce, bully, cajole, It will assume any form if that's what it takes to deceive you. It will reason with you like a lawyer or a jam or jam a nine millimeter in your face like a stick up man. Resistance has no conscience. It will pledge anything to get a deal, then double cross you as soon as your back is turned. If you take resistance at its word, you deserve everything you get. Resistance is always lying and is always full of shit. Resistance is like the alien or the terminator or the shark in Jaws. It cannot be reasoned with. 
It understands nothing but power. It is an engine of destruction programmed from the factory with one object only, to prevent us from doing our work. Reduce it to a single cell, and that cell will continue to attack. This is resistance nature. It's all it knows. Resistance is not out to get you personally. It doesn't know who you are and doesn't care. Resistance is a force of nature. It acts objectively, though it feels malevolent. Resistance, in fact, operates within the indifference of rain, and transits the heavens by the same laws as the stars. When we marshal our forces to combat resistance, we must remember this. Like a magnetized needle floating on a surface of oil, resistance will unfailingly point to true north, meaning that calling or action it most wants to stop us from doing. We can use this. We can use it as a compass. We can navigate by resistance, letting it guide us to that calling or action that we must follow before all others. Rule of thumb, the more important a call or action in our soul's evolution, the more resistance we will feel pursuing it. From the Burning Word by Judith Kunst. When in my 20s I fell in love with poetry, took out some big loans, packed up my small red Mazda hatchback with everything I owned, and drove from Denver to New York to start graduate school, it never occurred to me that I was searching for a new way to read the Bible. I wanted language and language alone. I wanted to bend grammar, curse freely, invite illogical leaps of association and unjustifiable juxtapositions to dine at my mental table, and none of that seemed compatible with my faith tradition. I was bowled over by the power of language in the novels and poems I was reading, but I had not yet recognized that such power might be rooted in and connected with the God and the ancient scriptures I had studied in youth groups and college Bible studies. It is not easy to write powerful words on one's own, I quickly discovered. I may have declared myself to be a writer, may have given up on evangelical religion and that early plan to go to Christian seminary. Yet I found I could not easily detach from my tradition's drive to pass through language toward an always intangible spiritual reality. Ideas had always mattered so much more than the words that conveyed them. Now I wandered the campus at night, lonely, broke, staring up at the sky with what felt like a writerly intensity, muttering under my breath, the moon, the moon. I wanted to capture on paper the moon's very soul, but it took me a while to figure out that first I had to learn how to make a body of words that could house that soul. I had to learn that language, in the poet Mary Oliver's words, is rich and malleable. It is a living, vibrant material, and every part works in conjunction with every other part. The content, the pace, the diction, the rhythms, the tone, as well as the very sliding, floating, thumping, rapping sounds of it. 
Slowly I began to work with words. My thumbs turned gray from paging through the dictionary and the thesaurus. Those still lonely nights now found me muttering satellite, luminary, Lurga the goddess, moon-faced, moonlighting, moonshine, moonstruct, monastery, money, monkey vision, business, murk. Each sound played out in my mouth and on the page with words. I fashioned bone, skin, sinew, and I could feel whole pages starting to move. In my second year of graduate school, I met weekly with nine other students and a professor for a two-hour poetry workshop. We passed out copies of new poems to be critiqued, argued over and sometimes praised buzzwords about language floated in the air. Fresh, original, haunting, strange. One week, a student scorched another student's poem because it used the word butterfly. No one can use that word in a poem, he said. It's sentimental and cliched. There was a long pause. The teacher, a wonderful poet named Marie Howe, smiled slowly. Please take out a piece of paper and write the following words. She said, butterfly, rainbow, flower, happiness. We knew where she was headed, and as we scribbled, someone cursed mildly under his breath. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, Maria immediately said, add that word as well, adding the ultimate overused cliche to the list. Everyone laughed and she gave the assignment, write a poem of your own using at least two words on the list. Oh joy, oh hell. I've been given just the challenge I needed to apply my imagination and my poetic tools directly to the faith I've been trying to ignore I distanced myself from an overt Christian identity, but somehow I couldn't choose as my subject anything other than the J word, throbbing at me from my notebook. Still, in that competitive, distinctly non-religious environment, no way was I going to offer up language that felt like a saccharine Christian psalm. I had to make a body of words about Jesus that would truly live and breathe there in that formidable Wednesday night gathering of writers. Just a few months prior to this was when my summer writing teacher had challenged me to consider how Jews read the Bible. And so I had begun to examine various Jewish approaches to holy language. I discovered the works of philosopher Abraham Joshua Heschel, for example, who wrote, The word of God is not an object of contemplation, not an ought to, an idea suspended between being and non-being. It is a perpetual event, a demand of God more real than a mountain, more powerful than all thunders. I've been used to thinking about the words of the Bible as true. Now I began to wonder how was that different from thinking about them as real? And not just contemplating them, Heschel reminded me, but tangibly encountering them. Mountain, thunder, body, bread. When your words came, I ate them. All this was at work in my mind as I struggled to complete the assignment for my Wednesday workshop. I'd come across a poem by a French surrealist poet, Andre Brayton, called Freedom of Love, that described different parts of his wife's body, her hair, her teeth, her throat, her back, using wildly inventive metaphors 
I decided to make a similar description of Jesus. And for a week, I funneled my imagination into lists and lists of possible metaphors. Here's a part of the poem that emerged. Jesus with the chest of a blossoming rosebush. Jesus with hips of a rollicking skiff. With thighs of rung crystal. With calves of an ancient mooring. Jesus with eyes of wild oak and sung honey. Jesus with eyes full of desert. Eyes full of mirror and a roaring horizon. Eyes of a bird beyond the gun. At the time, I was conscious only of wanting to write a poem that would impress my Wednesday night colleagues. But deeper down was the desire to find and take hold of that realness I'd once sensed in the 23rd Psalm. I didn't want to assert some absolute truth about my own religion. I just wanted to make the word Jesus viscerally felt to the poets sitting around the table, including me. To recover using my imagination some sense of what the poet Scott Carnes says, the indeterminate enormity contained in that name. To make God's name, the definitive word, real to its hearers, this desire lies at the heart of both Jewish and Christian traditions. The Jewish community makes it real by reverently refusing to fully spell out God's most intimate name or to ever speak it out loud. My Christian community makes it real by speaking all God's names enthusiastically, a poster listing every biblical moniker for the Messiah in a rainbow cascade of fonts was hung somewhere on a wall in every church I attended as a child. The Talmud makes the words of Torah real by studying them according to every syllable, a God-intended significance. And Midrash makes the same words real by elaborating upon them, arguing with them, turning and turning, to, turning them with the God-made engine of human imagination. Daniel Laporte, in her book, White Hot Truth, talks about wisdom as paradoxical. True wisdom usually holds and transcends opposing points of view. Wisdom knows that there is always an exception to the rule, that there is a time and place, and that case by case is divine protocol. If you can comfortably hold your paradoxes, you're going to be just fine because I'm suggesting that you love yourself first and foremost and include the world in your loving and then get off your ass and be more selflessly engaged. Raise your standards and be more flexible and accommodating. Forgive and don't forget. Honor spiritual traditions and be your own guru. Be open-hearted and have clear, strong boundaries. Be understanding and don't take any shit. Have a vision and go with the flow. Trust and do the work. Get real and be idealistic. Be steadfast in your truth and make all kinds of exceptions have strong preferences, and be easy to please. Lead with your heart 
and your head. Own your extraordinariness, own your extraordinariness and your ordinariness. Because it's up to you and we're all in this together. And hey, we have all the time in the world, but this is urgent. Thank you.